Hey listeners, thanks for dropping in. I'm Christy. And I'm Melissa. And this is Buried Motives, where we dig deep into the details of some of the most gruesome dirtbag murderers. Welcome back to Buried Motives. We're glad that you're joining us this week. We are. We love that you guys keep coming back. I am super excited to hear about your case today. I'm excited to tell it to you. So let's just get right into it. Today, we are going to cover a victim group that is not talked about a lot in the true crime world, despite its appalling statistics. There is a certain group of people whose number one cause of death is murder. Any guesses who this vulnerable group is? If I guess right, do I get a prize? Yes, you get to spend the rest of the afternoon with me. Woo, bonus! <laughs> uh, I am going to guess. We just did a domestic violence course through work, and so it doesn't have something to do with that. Yes, actually, you're on the right track. Is it pregnant women? It is pregnant women. That was the stat that I just heard, and it is awful. It's appalling. It really is. In the United States, pregnant and postpartum women die by homicide more than they do from any other cause. Which is so crazy. It is, because if you think about how much more they are at risk health-wise, just being pregnant and giving birth and postpartumly, to think that homicide is the number one cause of their death when they're already at an increased risk of a natural death blows my mind. Yeah. When we were talking about it at work, I was floored. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I don't feel like this is talked about a lot. No, not at all. It's supposed to be such a happy time, right? Right. You're bringing home baby. It's this blissful time. You know, the issue is supposed to be bringing home the baby and not being able to sleep. It's not supposed to be worrying about whether your partner's going to kill you or not. Right. And a lot of it happens even before you bring that baby home. Mm -hmm. There was a study done by researchers at the University of Tulane that was published in the Journal of Obstetrics and Gynecology that found that pregnant or postpartum women are twice as likely to die by homicide than by any other leading cause of maternal mortality. When compared with women in the same age groups, who were not pregnant or postpartum, they were 16% more likely to be murdered, and this is a significant risk elevation. Researchers believe that this number is even higher than what is recorded, because before 2017, it was seldom recorded on a woman's death certificate if she was pregnant or not at the time of her death. Now that it is being recorded, researchers are expecting to see even more alarming numbers. So it's worse than we even think it is right now. Which is just so shocking. It is. And I knew that domestic violence rates increase when you're pregnant, but I didn't ever make that connection to actual homicide. Yeah, it's wild to me. Especially if it's coming from an intimate partner. Like, that's your child as well. Intimate partner violence is so scary. It really is. Of all the pregnant and postpartum women who are murdered, black women and younger girls are at an even greater risk. Girls ages 10 to 19 are six times more likely to be murdered, and black women are almost double that at eight to 12 times more likely. Is that if they're pregnant? If they're pregnant Mm. or postpartum. Studies suggest that because of racism, black women are not given the same quality of prenatal care and are not believed to the same degree when they report pain and abuse, which is so terrible. So sad. Two-thirds of these murders occur in the victim's home. And most are committed by their significant other or intimate partner. 
The American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology recommends universal screening for intimate partner violence during pregnancy, but it is estimated that less than 30% of women are currently being screened. Which is what our course was on. It's so funny that this is like matching up to what you just learned about. We're always, we have this like subliminal like wavelength, I think. We're connected. We are. And all things murder and gruesomeness. <laughs> Doctors Horan and Chang conducted a study that was published in the Journal of the American Medical Association in March of 2001. And they found that one out of five deaths are homicide for pregnant and postpartum women. However, the more research that takes place, the higher that number grows. For example, a study in the Journal of Midwifery and Women's Health looked at the maternal mortality rates just for Washington, D.C. What they found was astounding. In the previous eight years, 43% of pregnant and postpartum women who died, died by being murdered. Wow. 43%. That is a huge amount. Almost half of these deaths were not included in the D.C. Center for Health and Statistics. Why are we not hearing more about this Right. Then? This finding indicates that this issue is so much more dire than researchers even suspected. Because that's just looking at one major city. I would have never guessed that the rates were that high. So there's already alarming statistics, but we're not even getting the right statistics yet. So with all of this being said, and as we get into this case, I just wanted to say that if you are pregnant or have just had a baby, please reach out for help if you are experiencing any form of domestic abuse or violence. And if you have a loved one who is currently pregnant or has given birth in the last year, please keep an eye on them and let them know that you are there for them. This atrocity is flying under the radar and is so terribly alarming to me. Creating another human life should be the most joyous time in a woman's life, not a time when they are most at risk for being murdered. Yeah, totally. So I know that was a lot as we're getting into there, but I just felt like we needed to raise some awareness as to what's actually happening to pregnant women in the United States. And I'm assuming those numbers will trickle to other countries as well. Hopefully not a trend that will continue, but definitely need some awareness raised about it. I would have never guessed that those rates were that high. Yeah, I was shocked as well. Okay, so you're going to tell us today about a dirtbag dad that murders his wife? Not quite. What? As I'm sure you've gathered, we are going to be talking about a pregnant woman who was savagely murdered. The unique thing about this murder is that the victim wasn't murdered by her significant other. She was heinously murdered by another woman. Oh. That woman being Lisa Montgomery. And so we're going to start our tale with Lisa. Another woman? Another woman. Was it the other woman? It was not the other woman. What? Yeah. This is very unique in the world of pregnant or postnatal women being murdered because this is not the norm. Usually it is by their intimate partner. Mm -hmm. Lisa Marie Patterson, Montgomery would be a married name for her, had one of the worst, most heartbreaking upbringings that I think we've covered so far on Buried Motives. Oh, that's got to be a pretty bad upbringing then. Yeah. So we're starting bad right from the start. So a little bit of a warning here. Because of this, many have questioned how the abuse she endured factored into her actions later. Lisa was born on February 27, 1968, in Pierce County, Washington. Some sources say she was born in Malvern, Kansas, but that is where she was living at the time of the murder. So I used the information I found from her burial records. Lisa's mother, Judy Shaughnessy, was 20 years old when she gave birth to Lisa. I can say with confidence that this woman should never have been a mother. Judy was a mean, raging alcoholic and drank heavily while pregnant with Lisa. She was another Trudy. Exactly. Ugh. Because of the excess drinking, Lisa was born with permanent brain damage. And it can happen with just one drink. Mm -hmm. No drinks are safe in pregnancy. 
So she had FASD. Wasn't formally diagnosed, but a lot of experts believe that she did have fetal alcohol syndrome. Yes, but they had just put it down as permanent brain damage. Okay. Lisa's father, John Patterson, was 25 years old when Lisa was born and serving in the military. He was also an alcoholic. John had a four-year-old daughter named Diane from a previous relationship. John would be Judy's second of six husbands. That's a lot of husbands. That is. That's a lot of faith that a marriage is going to work out. Right? (laughs) But not quite as many as Evelyn Hugo. (laughs) (laughs) Judy was extremely abusive towards both girls, even being described as cruel. Family members reported that one of Lisa's first sentences was, don't spank me. Judy would abuse them physically and emotionally and sometimes even tape their mouths shut. This might sound silly, but when I was looking up Lisa and her parents on the burial sites, Lisa had this long write-up about her crime, and her mother has this nice picture and write-up, like she had been a lovely person, and it just didn't sit right with me. Oh, because she was so cruel. Yeah, just my personal opinion. I was just so upset because of what she put Lisa through, and then to look at her burial information, this really nice picture of her, she's smiling and oh, she'll be lovingly missed by blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, Mm-mm, how come she gets that? And then the monster that she created, who is her daughter, gets this horrible write-up. Because she didn't kill anybody. Well, I think she killed parts of her daughter, to oh, be honest. Oh, for sure. Yeah. yeah. She led to it. <laughs> but she didn't actually pull the trigger. No. But maybe what she did was even worse. Yeah. So at the beginning, Diane, so the stepsister, mm-hmm. would endure the worst of the punishments because she was older. And because she was the stepchild? I think just because she was older. Okay. Because Lisa gets it even worse after. Oh. Diane later said that Judy would hit them with whatever she happened to have in her hands at the time, even brooms. She would take her finger and poke it into the girl's chest repeatedly as hard as she could. Diane said about her stepmother, quote, Judy was manipulative and, I hate to use this word, but evil. She enjoyed torturing the people around her. She got joy out of it. Judy knew that Diane was sensitive about her birth mother abandoning her, so she would strip Diane naked and push her out the front door of their house and pretend to kick her out. She would tell Diane to leave and that she couldn't take anything with her because Judy had purchased it all for her. What? So she would take this insecurity of her birth mom abandoning her and hurt her with that. That is beyond cruel. Mm -hmm. The girls' father would be away a lot. And when he was gone, Judy would have different men over to the house. Sometimes Judy would get into physical fights with these men and Diane would try to protect Lisa. When Lisa was only four years old, Judy started to leave her and her sister with a male babysitter that may have been Judy's boyfriend. This dirtbag sitter would repeatedly rape eight-year-old Diane while Lisa laid in the same bed with them watching while it happened. Oh, that's disturbing on so many different levels. Mm Mm-hmm. Around the same time, Judy and John, Lisa's parents, separated, and Diane was taken into protective custody. For some unfortunate reason, Lisa was not removed from the home and was left at her mother's mercy. So they removed Diane from the home, but not Lisa. But were they removing Diane from her father's care? So they were thinking that he wasn't an adequate father. Right, but they obviously were aware of the abuse in the home Mm -hmm. and left Lisa to stay with her mom, but took Diane away from her father. But it sounds like she can present herself as a pretty nice woman. (laughs) She got that nice write-up in her obituary. True. Right? And so maybe she's kind of Mm two-faced and like, oh, John's all the problem. Yeah. So we separate and of course, they're not going to let John keep his kid. But if Judy put off a good face, maybe that's why she got to keep Lisa. 
Yeah. So we can add conniving maybe then to yeah. her list of qualities. <laughs> qualities. <laughs> I say that with an eye roll. Just imagine it. <laughs> Diane was placed in foster care and grew up the rest of her childhood in a loving home. She later said that because she got out and was taught love, she was able to process her childhood trauma and become a well-adjusted adult. Success story. It was a success story. Oh, so nice to hear those. It is. They're so few and far between. Mm-hmm. They seem to be. Maybe it's just because we cover a whole bunch of dirtbags, though. That's true. We're focusing on the ones that don't usually come yeah. out of it. We have a little bit of a bias when we do our research. <laughs> it's true. Unfortunately, Lisa did not get this same chance. Which speaks to the idea that nurture absolutely played a part in the monster she would later become. Diane wouldn't see Lisa for 34 years until Lisa's trial. Which that kind of broke my heart a little bit because she had taken care of Lisa like they had made a little bond together. That is sad. But interesting that she would re-enter her life during the trial then. Like she was still supportive. Yeah. And I believe she had like testified of the abuse that Mm. Lisa had went through. When Lisa was in kindergarten, her mother Judy remarried. This man's name was Jackie Kleiner. He went by Jack and was a total disgusting monster. Judy and Jack had three children quite quickly, one right after the other. Jack would beat his wife and all the children. And to be extra degrading, he would make the girls undress before whipping them. Oh, it's a dirtbag move. Yeah, they said he kind of got sexual enjoyment by making them get naked and then he would whip them. That's super disturbing. Yeah. What a gross human being. Mm -hmm. The family lived in poverty and moved 16 times during Lisa's childhood. So no real stability. Eventually, they moved to an isolated area outside of Sperry, Oklahoma. Oh, no. They lived in a trailer at the end of a dead end road. So nobody would have seen what was happening at their place. After moving to this house of horror, Jack, being an absolute piece of human trash, built a shed attached to the trailer where he could rape Lisa in a separate private place that's only purpose was to repeatedly rape his stepdaughter. What? Allegedly from age 11 on. No way. Yeah. He makes me sick, but it gets even worse. And Judy did what? What was his explanation of why they had this little extra room? Like, wasn't Judy curious about, hey, why do you and Lisa only go out there? Oh, Judy is fully aware of what's happening. And eventually uses this room to her advantage, which we're going to talk about. What? Mm Mm-hmm. How does she use it to her advantage? I'll tell you. Like I said, this is like terrible, but it is going to get even worse from here. And this is how it gets worse. Jack started pimping out Lisa to his friends. No. Yes. He would also use her as payment if other trades did work for them. (gasps) Among many others on occasion, a plumber and electrician both did work for Jack And instead of paying them, he offered up sex with his stepdaughter, an offer they did not refuse. Those are dirtbags too. Yeah. So basically, it was like, oh, you guys fixed my taps? Well, I don't have any money, but here, you can have sex with my child instead and do whatever you want to her. And again, on Jack's obituary, nothing is said about what a dirtbag he is. Oh, that is rotten. Yeah. And so when you asked about Judy, she was well aware of all of this sexual abuse, but she blamed Lisa for it. And some reports say that she was profiting as well on trafficking out her daughter. She would also use Lisa as payment for services. No way. Yes. Who are all these people that are willing to trade their services for sex with a teenager? Yeah. And was she even a teenager at this time? No, she was 11. 11. At 11. And that's exactly, I wrote right in here, I have to question, did every single person who they offered this to say yes and then take them up on their disgusting offer? And if not... 
why didn't any of those people, if there were any, go to the police and tell them what these sick dirtbags were doing? Yeah, that is bizarre. Because if someone offered that up to you, don't you think you would go to the police? Like if you were not that kind of person that was going to do that and say, look at these people offered me sex with their 11 year old. What kind of people are taking them off the offers? Many, 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 no. many. Yeah, not just one or two. Sometimes multiple ones in a day because he would also pimp her out to like their friends. No way. Mm-hmm. And so they're collecting money then, not just services, but yep. actual money. Also money. And what was going on with their three younger children? Was it only Lisa? I can't find any reports on the other children. Oh, my goodness. When Lisa became a teenager, she told her cousin what was happening. Her cousin was a deputy sheriff, but Lisa begged him not to tell anyone else. She believed that Jack would kill her if he knew she told anyone. This cousin later had to testify in court. He said that Lisa was sexually abused orally, vaginally, and anally. He said, quote, She said it was over and over, one man right after the other, and went on for hours. They were also physically violent. They would beat and slap her if she was doing it wrong. When they were done, they urinated on her like she was trash. What? Like I said, this is one of the worst cases I've ever heard of abuse for a child. And why didn't this guy go to the authorities? He didn't. He was an authority. He was a deputy sheriff. But there are certain things that you have to divulge. Well, he didn't. And I'm sure that's a regret that he had to live with. That is so sad. Lisa convinced him that Jack would kill her if he found out that she told. So then you take her into protective custody. Yep. Lisa also told one of her stepbrothers about the abuse. He said in court, quote, Lisa told me that when these men raped her, she would go away in her mind and try not to be present. Well, that's a defense mechanism that she would need. That's going to come up a lot in this case. Judy, her mother, also had to testify in court about her knowledge of the sexual abuse. She admitted to walking in on her husband raping Lisa. She said, quote, he was in her, he was pumping her. That is so disturbing. It just makes me sick that this happened to a little girl. Mm -hmm. Like, I can't even imagine Lisa living this way, having men beat her, rape her, and urinate on her. Totally treating her like she is worthless. Yeah, it is unfathomable. I don't know how you come through this almost any other way than Lisa does. Not to make excuse for Lisa at all, but it just gives us some understanding as to what we're working with before the murder that we're going to talk about today happens. Mm. One of the worst things about this is that when this all came out in court, the court did not report Jack's despicable actions, and he, or Judy for that matter, were never charged for what they did to Lisa. What? It makes me want to vomit. Like, what the actual heck? Was it past the statute of limitations? Possibly. Why were there no consequences for what they did? It was never reported. It came out in the courts, but they didn't report it to the authorities. So Lisa didn't press charges after it came out? No. And it comes out even earlier than when Lisa goes to court and wasn't reported then either, which I'll talk about. Huh. And so consequently, none of the men who Lisa was human trafficked to were charged either. They all got away with it. To add to this frustration, this abuse had been brought to the court's attention years earlier when Judy was undergoing divorce hearings and Lisa testified against her stepfather about the rapes, but nothing was done about it then either. What? Yeah. Fail on the system. Totally. Oh my goodness. It's just so tragic. I can't even imagine. I just was so angry when I was writing this. Like, how could they let this little girl down? Time after time after time. It got brought out in the courts. She had told two different people about it. Thanks for telling us your story. We're not going to do anything about it, but now we'll let you go home with your mother. 
Yeah. And they knew that Judy was allowing this to happen. But no, we'll let you go back to your mom. It was just she was going through divorce and so was just using Lisa to get back at Jack because she knew that it was going on. So you're going to tell the court about what your stepdad has done to you. Meanwhile, I knew all about it the whole time. Exactly. That is awful. Now you can see why I'm so angry that she has this nice little write-up on her burial description. I'm just flabbergasted because I thought there was laws put in place that if abuse was disclosed on a minor, that it had to be investigated and prosecuted. Well, there should be. I don't know about this time in that state what there was or if it just fell through the cracks or someone thought someone else was going to report it. I don't know what happened. And sorry, how old was she when she went through the divorce hearings? What year was it? She would have still been a teenager. Still a minor. Yeah, still a minor. So still should have been afforded the protection of the system. Yes. Oh, fail. Even if she was over 18, she still should have been afforded that. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. But even more so, there's a greater duty of care. For sure. Absolutely. Unsurprisingly, Lisa started to drink alcohol as a child to try and cope with the severe abuse she was enduring at the hands of her mother and stepfather. No kidding. You have to find some way to cope. When her mother caught her drinking at the age of 14, her solution was to threaten Lisa with a gun. What? Yep. She's an alcoholic herself. They're all alcoholics. But when she caught Lisa drinking at 14, she grabbed a gun and threatened her life with it. When Lisa was 16, her mother and stepfather divorced. So I guess she was 16. I actually had that in here. (laughs) And family members believed that Judy blamed Lisa for it. Why? Because she's a dirtbag. (laughs) Why? That goes without saying. Like, why would she? Yeah, honestly. But what was her reasoning of saying, like, Lisa caused this because Lisa did X, Y, and Z? No, there was nothing for her to blame Lisa on. So anything she said would have been totally invalid anyway. I'm just curious of what her story was. Who knows what she was blaming her for? Probably, you're not keeping your stepfather happy enough. Yeah, you're not helping out around the house. You're causing him too much stress. Yeah. Bloody bleeping blah. She just makes me so mad. I wonder, you said the cousin was a deputy sheriff. Mm -hmm. And what age was Lisa when she complained to him? She was a teenager, I believe. It was before the divorce, right? And so I'm wondering if there wasn't any charges against Jack? None, ever. Or even an investigation? Nope. Jack and Judy died without this on their records. Oh, my goodness. I'm I'm trying to give the benefit of the doubt to at least somebody in the story. (laughs) And maybe, maybe the cousin was putting some pressure on him and maybe that's when they divorced. I don't know. There's just too many dirtbags in this story. There is. And too many people just looking the other way. That's crazy. During Lisa's later incarceration, she was examined by a clinical psychologist from the Bellevue New York University Program for Survivors of Torture named Catherine Porterfield. Catherine explained that when children grow up living in constant fear, their brains adapt to survive. She said that when children experience severe trauma, they can sometimes dissociate from their feelings and bodies as a way of protecting themselves. The more often it happens, the more it becomes a part of who the child is as a person. About Lisa, she said, quote, That is exactly what Lisa Montgomery developed into, which is a person who had profound disconnection from her body, from her mind, from her experience. Those were disconnections that were tragic in their consequences, but they were what we come to understand as neurophysiological adaptations to survive being constantly under assault. It's incredible how structures in the brain can change during childhood when faced with trauma. Right. Your body has to survive and adapt somehow, and so it does what it needs to to survive. And so I can totally see how she would disassociate to get through that trauma. Yeah, I feel like that was a totally accurate statement. 
mm-hmm. about Lisa. And it wasn't like this just started. The rape started when she was 11. But right from a baby, like her first sentences included, don't spank me. Mm-hmm. Seeing her stepsister get raped at the age of four. It's just mind blowing to me. In an attempt to escape the horrible nightmare that she was living on a daily basis, at age 18, Lisa married her stepbrother, Carl Bowman, in August of 1986. What? hmm Okay. Is that allowed? It was. They got married. Weren't they half-siblings? Stepbrother, not half-brother. So they weren't genetically connected. Okay. Sorry, I thought it was one of the three children that her mother had had with Jack. No, because her mother had multiple marriages. His last name is Bowman. Okay, gotcha. So it's not as gross as it sounds. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But unfortunately, this would not be the reprieve from abuse that she had hoped it would be. No, he's a dirtbag too? Yep. Christy, there's too many dirtbags. I know. That's why I said this poor woman, what she lived through is astounding. Lisa and her stepbrother, husband, had four children in five years. The first one was born in January 1987. So shotgun wedding when I did the math. After their fourth child was born, Lisa had to undergo tubal ligation in 1990. This devastated Lisa. Lisa later said that the doctors suggested it, but her mother and husband forced her to have the procedure. Okay. I don't feel like Lisa at this point in her life could really stand up for herself. Right. When was anything what Lisa wanted? The one time that Lisa felt like she was given attention was when she was pregnant, a feeling she craved. People talked about how, you know, she would go out in public and people would dote on her and hold Mm -hmm. doors for her. And, oh, you know, and she would get all this attention that she never got anywhere else in her life. She was being taken care of like she had never been taken care of during her childhood. Right. And so she connected that to being pregnant. So it wasn't even, I think, so much about having the children. She just always wanted to be pregnant. Mm -hmm. Lisa's husband would violently beat and rape his young bride. While at their house, one of Lisa's brothers discovered a videotape of a home movie that showed Lisa's husband raping and beating her. Lisa's brother said, quote, It was violent and like a scene out of a horror movie. I felt sick watching the video. I didn't know what to do or how to talk to my sister about it. Yeah, because he was watching his sister be raped. Yeah, so he did nothing. Again, no one intervened. He didn't even bring it up with her. No, he said he didn't know how to. But he recognized that it was wrong. Yeah, it made him sick. Mm. People started to notice that Lisa would slip into a world of her own. Experts say this was an early sign of her mental illnesses, which included bipolar disorder, complex post-traumatic stress disorder, dissociative disorder, and traumatic brain injury. I called it. You did. (laughs) I knew you would. (laughs) That's what's so great about doing this podcast with a nurse. She's just so knowledgeable about that kind of stuff. I just always find dissociated personality disorder so interesting. And along with the complex trauma that she's had, it makes total sense. Yeah, I wouldn't dispute any of these diagnoses on her. Mm -hmm. Lisa's children would say that Lisa would space out and they invented the nickname Martha to yell at her to help her snap out of it. So if they were saying, mom, mom, she wouldn't do anything. So they'd be like, Martha. And then she would snap out of it. And oh, oh, what? So her children at a young age recognized that she would do this. Yes. Her daughter, in fact, recalled that Lisa sometimes would behave like a child when they were out in public. She would twirl and skip and swing her arms about. This was bizarre behavior in their opinion and would sometimes embarrass the kids. It was a regressive state though, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. She never nurtured that inner child at all. Mm Mm-hmm. Lisa and Carl were separated in 1994. Lisa had an affair and claimed that she was pregnant. Lisa and Carl worked things out and she stopped making the pregnancy claim. 
1998, the couple split up for good and were divorced. Good riddance, Carl. So Lisa's kids stay with her? Yes. And by all reports, she's a good mom? Other than she spaces out occasionally? Yes. Yeah, I didn't find any instances of abuse or things like that from Lisa to her children. Which in and of itself is a miracle. It is. Lisa met a man named Kevin Montgomery in the year 2000. When they met, she told him she was pregnant, but was going to have an abortion. Kevin gave her $40 for the procedure, and they didn't talk about it again. Allegedly, she had told him she was going to go to Mexico to have it done. Okay. Yeah. Lisa and Kevin fell in love and were married. Hold on. I gotta ask a question. Was she saying that it was Kevin's baby? No. When they met, she said she was already pregnant. Okay. So they met and she's like, yeah, I'm pregnant. So I'm going to get an abortion. Okay. Because she likes that attention. Right. Right? Okay. So she had lied to Carl about being pregnant. Because once they got back together, she just never talked about it again. And then when she first meets Kevin, she tells him she's pregnant and getting an abortion. Meanwhile, she's had a tubal. Yes. She's been sterilized. So then in 2002, Lisa once again told Kevin and family and friends that she was pregnant. Lisa would go to the doctor for what everyone believed to be prenatal care. Lisa would not let Kevin attend the appointments with her. Her doctor later testified in court that Lisa did come to see them, but it was for things like a cold and ankle pain. The doctor did not treat her for anything pregnancy related. When the fictitious due date came and went, Lisa told Kevin that she had a miscarriage. She also told him that she donated the baby's body to science. Okay, this is a whole lot of not adding up. So she actually like patted her belly and pretended to be pregnant the whole time. Mm-hmm. Okay. Or I shouldn't say mm-hmm because the next pregnancy, she actually has like pseudo symptoms. Okay. So you don't know if she did for this one either. Yeah. So I don't know for sure if she does for this one. Okay. Yeah. We'll talk about that in the next one here really quick. Isn't it crazy how the mind-body connection works like that? Yeah. That you can believe something so much that your body will actually make physical allowances for those erroneous beliefs. Yeah. It's amazing. Our minds are so powerful. Mm -hmm. Well, even her mind was trying to protect her Mm -hmm. by putting her into those disassociated states. Lisa didn't tell Kevin that she had had her tubes tied. And so he had no reason not to believe his wife about her pregnancies. Lisa's lawyer later said that Lisa had lost touch with reality and fantasized about being pregnant. And like I said before, this might have been the only time that she felt worthy or special. Lisa told everyone once again, so this is at least the fourth pregnancy that we know that she has lied about, but she told everyone again that she was pregnant in the spring of 2004 and that she was due in December. Oh dear. Yeah. I'm guessing the ending already, and this is not going to go good. No, I've already told you what she's going to do. It's like a private practice episode. It really is. Oh, my goodness. If any of you have seen that episode, you know what we're talking about. And if you haven't seen that episode, don't worry, because I'm going to tell you about it. Not the episode, but what happens here. For realsies? That's what you're going to tell me about? Yeah. Oh, my goodness. I know, but it's just so... I just feel like these cases need to be heard more. Because this is just swept under the rug. What happens to pregnant women? This This is is a little different than the domestic violence, obviously. Wow. So that fall, so a few months later, Lisa was going through a custody battle with her ex-husband, Carl. Things got nasty, and Carl and his new wife were starting to send Lisa emails telling her that they were going to expose her lies about being pregnant and use it against her in the upcoming custody proceedings. Oh, so now she requires proof. Yes. Lisa responded by telling them that she was going to prove them wrong. On December 10th, just 14 days before the murder that we're going to talk about, 
Carl filed a motion for change of custody of the two minor children who currently lived with Lisa. And that's going to back her into a corner. Mm-hmm. Oh, so we know what's going to happen because when people who have had that much trauma in their early childhood, when they're backed into a corner, for most, what they do is they have to find a way to attack first. Yeah. And now Carl, who's already a dirtbag, is trying to threaten to take her children away that are living with her. So Lisa knew she needed to produce a baby to fight this battle and keep her children in her custody or she would be proven a liar. Recipe for disaster. Yep. Which is now going to lead us into why we're talking about this case today. Mm -hmm. Around the same time that Lisa announced her most recent fictional pregnancy, she met a woman online named Bobby Joe Stinnett. Lisa and Bobby Joe both bred rat terrier dogs. They met on an online message board called Ratter Chatter for people interested in rat terrier dogs. <laughs> but I dare you to come up with a better name than Ratter Chatter for an interest group about rat terriers. That is a good interest group name. It's a brilliant name. I was like Ratter Chatter like that. It was just like so satisfying to learn that that's what it was called. People are so clever. Right? Yeah, that's the word I wanted. So clever. The two ladies became friends and even met at a dog show in April of 2004. There are pictures of them together with their dogs. Lisa had her daughter with her and Bobby Joe's husband, who she had been high school sweethearts with, was with her in the picture. Bobby Joe was pregnant with her first child at the time, around four months along, when they had met in April. So that's going to put her at the perfect due date time. Yep. Well, speaking about Bobby Joe, she was described as being smart and kind to others. She loved horses and dogs. Bobby Joe had a website called Happy Haven Farms to promote her dog breeding business in Skidmore, Missouri. And Skidmore might be the smallest town we've mentioned so far, at less than 300 people living there at the time. Her website featured pictures of Bobby Joe with her dogs. Bobby Joe had been open about her pregnancy and shared the news with her online community. The two women started to exchange emails and bonding over their pregnancies. Again, we know that Lisa had been permanently sterilized 14 years earlier, and this would be medically proven later in court. Okay. But this didn't stop her from trying to convince others that she was pregnant. She began wearing maternity clothes and behaving like she was pregnant. So fast forward to December 2004. Bobby Joe is now eight months pregnant. Lisa is also nearing the end of her fake pregnancy. She told everyone she was due in December and knows she will need a baby to corroborate her lies. Mm-hmm. Lisa uses the alias Darlene Fisher to contact Bobby Joe via instant message on December 15th, 2004. She tells Bobby Joe that she is interested in purchasing one of the puppies she had for sale at the time. They made arrangements for Darlene, aka Lisa, to come and look at the puppies the next day. Lisa lived in Malvern, Kansas, but told Bobby Joe that she was coming from Fairfax, Missouri, a city that was less than a half hour away from where Bobby Joe lived. The drive from Lisa's actual house to Bobby Joe's was about two hours longer than that. It would take Lisa closer to two and a half hours to drive there. That's a long time to be in a disassociated state if mm -hmm. that's what they're going to claim later. Yep. Telling Bobby Joe that she lived closer likely made it seem more believable. And honestly, who would even be suspicious? Yeah. You wouldn't. Bobby Joe told her husband, Zebulon, who went by the name of Zeb, and her mother, Becky, that night that the next day a woman was coming to see the puppies. Again, this would seem harmless, and they were likely excited to sell another puppy before the baby was due to come along the following month. Mm -hmm. 
One report stated that Lisa made a practice run to and from Bobby Joe's house the day before the murder, which would have been the same day she contacted Bobby Joe about the puppies. That just makes it even more premeditated. It really does. And it's going to take away her defense of being in a disassociated state later. So I have a big question. Did she actually believe she was pregnant and she was having symptoms or was she actually trying to fake being pregnant? That's debatable. Was she actively taking steps though to fake it? I think that's what would prove whether she believed it or not. Because if you believe you're pregnant, then you're not going to do things that you have to do to fake being pregnant. Well, her body did react as if she was pregnant. So she believes it. But at the same time, I'm going to talk about another piece of evidence that would prove that she doesn't. It's really hard to decide on this one. That is interesting. The next day on December 16th, Lisa got in her car and drove to Bobby Joe's house. She arrived there at 1230 in the afternoon. Bobby Joe must have not recognized Lisa from meeting her back in April. The two women sat in the backyard playing with the puppies. Which you can't blame her for not recognizing her. She met her once at a dog show. And this is now from April to December. And they're talking online. So Mm -hmm. she's not seeing pictures of her. Yeah. So they're sitting in the backyard playing with the puppies. And at around 2.30 p.m., Bobby Joe's mother called her to confirm that Bobby Joe was going to pick her up from work at 3.30 p.m. This phone call must have put pressure on Lisa to get on with her plan before Bobby Joe had to leave and someone would be expecting her. Lisa had taken with her a white cord and a sharp kitchen knife, which she was hiding in her coat pocket during their entire interaction. Oh no. Lisa sprung into action and attacked Bobby Joe. She used the white cord to strangle her unconscious. Bobby Joe must have been just so stunned as to what was happening. They had already spent two hours with each other. It would have seemed like it was so out of the blue. Yeah. Lisa then took the sharp kitchen knife and used it to slice into Bobby Joe's stomach. The pain from this caused Bobby Joe to regain consciousness and she started to fight back. She was not only fighting for her own life, but for that of her unborn child. Blood would later be found caked in between Bobby Joe's toes, indicating that she was bleeding heavily while trying to fight back. This also meant that there was already enough blood on the floor to come up between her toes and soak her toenails. Bobby Joe also sustained defensive wounds on her hands, the side of her head, and the bridge of her nose during the altercation. So Lisa's having to beat her off while she's trying to rip the unborn baby out of her stomach. Yes, exactly. Because Bobby Joe's fighting for her life. Bobby Joe's fighting for her life, and so Lisa's fighting to try and subdue her again. Mm -hmm. When police later looked at Bobby Joe's hands, they found a clump of hair still in her hand that she had torn from her attacker. So she fought. Lisa, unfortunately, managed to overpower Bobby Joe and again strangled her, this time until she killed her. Bobby Joe was only 23 years old. That is so sad. Mm -hmm. Lisa had watched videos online on how to perform a C-section, which again, to me, indicates premeditation. Yep. She proceeded to cut Bobby Joe's baby girl from her uterus. She cut the umbilical cord and ran to her car. She began driving home while holding the baby and pinching the umbilical cord. She didn't tie it off? Not at that point. Don't tell me the baby dies too. The baby doesn't die. Okay, good. Lisa knew the baby needed attention, so she made a brief stop soon after leaving the crime scene to clamp the umbilical cord and suction mucus from the baby's mouth, and the baby finally cried. Lisa washed the baby off with baby wipes. She could see that the baby had a cut on her forehead from the attack, but was otherwise uninjured. Lisa then went to her trunk and got out a car seat that she had placed there prior and set the baby in the seat and proceeded to drive. Because they don't live close either. She's now got this long drive with the baby. 
And how is she going to explain all this when she gets back home? Well, I'll tell you right now. Oh. <laughs> Who's going to believe that story? Oh, I went to the hospital today, had a baby, and now I'm home. They do. What? They believe her. But this is what she does. Lisa drove to Topeka, Kansas and called her husband, Kevin, at 5.15 p.m., telling him that she had gone into labor while out Christmas shopping and had just given birth to their daughter inside a woman's clinic in Topeka. She told him to meet her at a parking lot near the clinic. Not at the clinic? Well, there was no clinic that she was at. I know, but... I don't even know if there was a woman's clinic in Topeka. I didn't look up Topeka to see even how big that is. And it was, I think, like a restaurant parking lot that she was like, can you pick me up here? Where's her car? There, in Topeka. So Kevin rushed to the spot where Lisa was waiting. Lisa's daughter and son also came to drive Lisa's car home for her while Kevin drove his wife and newborn baby back to Malvern. Okay. So she's trying to make this believable. Like, I just had a baby. I can't drive the car. So the yeah. kids are coming to drive the car, and that's why Kevin has to come and get her. Okay. How's she explaining the cutaway on the baby's head? I don't know. She might say there was forceps. That would be my guess. Who is going to release care of a mother and a newborn right after delivery? I know. With no follow-up care planned? No. Nothing. And drop them off in a parking lot? Like, <laughs> yeah. What are they thinking? Yeah. This is not a normal situation. No, it's not. And I think Lisa was just like, I gave birth. Come pick up me and the baby. I've stopped at this restaurant. Come get us here. Okay. Lisa and Kevin started to call friends and family to announce the birth of their daughter. So Kevin believes it. He's all excited. Yeah. Poor guy. Lisa named her Abigail and was over the moon over her new baby. They slept in the living room that night next to the baby's bassinet. The next morning, they decided to take the baby, Abigail, with them to run errands and go out for breakfast. And I don't know about you, but I surely was never up to running errands the morning after I had given birth. Yeah. While they were out, Lisa stopped to introduce people to their newborn baby. And I thought, what was going through her mind? It'd be so bizarre. Yeah. But now she's getting attention with the brand new baby, too, which she craves. Did they use this later to prove that she was in a disassociated state? Because what murderer is going out like let alone what new mother is going out in public what murderer is going out and yeah. showing off the evidence of your crime but she had told everybody she was pregnant and her mm -hmm. body did change to appear to be pregnant so who would really question right they didn't know that she just got picked up from Topeka in a parking lot she knows it she does but I believe that she would have gone on to like just really believe that Abigail was her daughter okay yeah is she in a total disassociated state and this is why she's doing all these things? Or has she just grown into a dirtbag? I don't know. And how long can you stay in a dissociated state? Exactly. Was she living her whole adult life, her whole childhood and adult life in that type of a state? That's bizarre. And I honestly believe that she must have believed that they would just get to live happily ever after and that no one would be the wiser about the obscene murder and kidnapping she had just committed. The couple returned home, and Lisa sat on the couch, holding her stolen baby. There was a knock at the door. Kevin answered the door, and it was the police. Kevin invited them in, having no idea why they were there. How did they get to her so quick? I'll tell you. So police entered and saw Lisa just sitting there, holding a newborn. And I thought, how eerie for those police officers. Before I go on with what happens next with Lisa and Kevin, I'm going to rewind a bit to an hour after Bobby Joe had been murdered, and what transpired to get the police at Lisa's door almost 300 kilometers, or 186 miles, from the crime scene. Okay, you are really going to tell me. I am really going to tell you. I always really tell you. <laughs> 
While Lisa would have still been driving her two and a half hour trek towards Malvern, Bobby Joe's mother got off of work. She waited for Bobby Joe. When her daughter didn't show up to pick her up from work, Becky decided to brave the cooler winter weather and walk the couple of blocks to Bobby Joe's house. What she found, no mother on earth should ever have to experience. No, that would have been awful. I can't even imagine. Your child and your grandchild? No. Ugh. Ugh. When Becky approached the house, she saw that the front door was open. She went inside and called for Bobby Joe. As she entered the living room, she discovered her daughter laying on the floor, covered in blood. She said it looked like Bobby Joe's stomach had exploded. Becky quickly called 911 for help. During that late in the pregnancy, you have almost a third of your body's blood going through that placenta. Oh, I cannot even imagine what that scene would have looked like. That's a lot of blood. It is. And then you also have that increased amount of blood, right? Yeah. Paramedics tried to revive Bobby Joe, but her injuries were too great. She was officially pronounced dead at the St. Francis Hospital in Maryville, Missouri. Panic grew when everyone realized that Bobby Joe's baby was nowhere to be found. No one knew if she had even survived the attack. Can you imagine, first of all, seeing what had happened to Bobby Joe, but then realizing that the monster who had ripped this baby from her mother's womb took the baby with them? Reports stated how traumatizing this crime scene was for investigators. And I wonder, with it being such a small town of less than 300 people, did the first responders and police know Bobby Joe personally? Oh, probably. They probably did. Mm-hmm. Which would just add to that trauma for them. A unique aspect of this case is that the investigation was aided with the use of an Amber Alert. And I found this really interesting. Initially, the request had been turned down as an Amber Alert had never been used for an unborn child before because there would be no description of the victim. Congressman Sam Graves intervened and the alert was implemented. Good for him. It was the very first one ever of its kind. The description of Lisa's car, a red Toyota Corolla, was used in the alert instead of a description of the baby. So how did they get the description of the car? Neighbors had seen a car parked out front. The car had been there for over two hours. Yeah. But I just thought, way to go, Congressman. Yeah. Like, it was just so great. I felt that he intervened and was like, "Mm -mm, we don't care. We're using this as an Amber Alert. Yeah. Forget the red tape, right? Yeah. So shout out to Congressman Sam Graves. (laughs) Good job. When police investigated, they could see that there was no forced entry into the Stinnett's home, indicating that Bobby Joe likely knew her attacker. It didn't take police long to realize that the number one suspect was the lady who had come to look at puppies earlier that day, Darlene Fisher, or as we know, Lisa Montgomery. Using computer forensics, police were able to trace the online communications between Bobby Joe and Darlene to Lisa's IP address. Lisa's car also matched the car that had been seen outside the Stinnett's home at the time of the crime. This was enough evidence to warrant the police taking a drive to question Lisa. That's some quick thinking about like, how are we going to track this person down? Yeah, they were right on top of it with their computer forensics. Really good police work. Yeah. Because it's the next day they're at her door. That's crazy. So going back now, when police entered Lisa's home, investigator Randy Strong told Lisa and Kevin that they were there investigating the murder of Bobby Joe Stinnett. They asked the couple about the baby in their custody. Lisa insisted that she had just given birth to the child and sent Kevin out to the truck where she said her discharge papers were. So he, Yeah. She's like, honey, go get the discharge papers. They're out in the truck. 
So he runs out to fetch them, but of course returned empty handed. Because there's no discharge. No. And I thought, what was going through poor Kevin's mind? He believed her that this is their daughter that she gave birth. And he's like, what's going on? He was probably all flustered. Yeah, I'll run out to the truck. I'll look for the papers. And he's probably searching everywhere. And what is he feeling and going through when he doesn't find these papers? He's probably thinking, oh, she just has them in the diaper bag or moved them somewhere else. Yeah, they're lost somewhere. They got lost in the shuffle. Yes. Because I 100% don't believe that Kevin had anything to do with this or knew what was happening. I think he really believed his wife was pregnant. Officer Strong asked to speak to Lisa outside of the home. She complied and allowed another officer to hold the baby while they spoke. Lisa told the officer that because they were having money problems, she actually had given birth to their daughter at home. She said she had lied to her husband so he wouldn't feel bad about not being able to afford a hospital birth. Lisa told Strong that she had the help of two friends. When Strong asked for the names of these two friends who helped her, she quickly responded saying that the friends didn't physically come to her house, but they had just stayed by their phones in case there were any complications and Lisa had to call them for help. So okay. she's changing her story a bit yep. here. But now police are going to ask her, okay, show us the afterbirth. Show us all the garbage of having a home birth. That's a messy thing. It is. And I'm sure they did because Lisa continued her story by saying that she had given birth all by herself inside the kitchen and then took the placenta and dumped it in a nearby creek. As one would. Which we know she didn't, right? Yeah. That would have all been left at the crime scene. Surprisingly, Lisa asked them if they could continue the questioning at the sheriff's office. Maybe she didn't want neighbors to see or her husband overhearing their conversation. It just seems bizarre behavior to me that she'd say, can we go to the station to continue talking about this? Regardless, soon after arriving at the sheriff's office, Lisa confessed to everything, which included killing Bobby Joe, removing the fetus from Bobby Joe's body, and abducting Bobby Joe's baby. So that's why she asked to go to the police station was to confess. Well, they had questioned her for, I think it only took about an hour, and then she finally confessed. Okay. I don't think it was initially her plan. Like, she was going to still try to talk her way out of it. Well, because she had already come up with so many different stories. Yeah. But when she couldn't, she just confessed. Okay. Thankfully, Bobby Joe's baby was returned to her father, Zeb Stinnett. DNA testing was performed to make sure this baby girl did belong to him and his deceased wife. Zeb named their precious daughter, Victoria Joe Stinnett. Lisa was charged with kidnapping, resulting in death. The indictment alleged that Lisa Montgomery, quote, willfully and unlawfully kidnapped, abducted, carried away, and held Victoria Jo Stinnett for the purpose and benefit of claiming Victoria Jo Stinnett as her child, and willfully transported Victoria Jo Stinnett in the interstate commerce from Skidmore, Missouri, across the state line to Malvern, Kansas, the actions of the defendant resulting in the death of Bobby Jo Stinnett. The superseding indictment further alleged statutory aggravating factors, including that Montgomery killed Stinnett in an especially heinous, cruel, and depraved manner, in that it involved serious physical abuse to Stinnett. Why not first-degree murder? This actually, I believe, carries a stiffer punishment because Lisa would later try to get out of this particular charge. Interesting. Lisa used the defense of not guilty due to insanity. Lisa underwent extensive medical evaluations during this trial. The defense had Lisa examined, and their doctors diagnosed her with depression, borderline personality disorder, post-traumatic stress disorder, and pseudosiasis. The prosecution's doctor agreed with those diagnoses, except for her suffering with pseudosiasis. Pseudosiasis is defined as a false belief of being pregnant that is associated with objective signs of pregnancy, 
which may include abdominal enlargement, reduced menstrual flow, amenorrhea, subjective sensation of fetal movement, nausea, breast engorgement and secretions, and labor pains at the expected date of delivery. So basically, your brain tricks your body into believing that you are in fact pregnant. Your body can increase its hormone levels to present like a real pregnancy if you want to be pregnant badly enough. Hence, you will believe this delusion. However, I argue that if Lisa believed the delusion, then why would she steal Bobby Joe's unborn child? Yeah, because she knew she wasn't pregnant. Mm-hmm. So the prosecution is saying, yep, we believe all those other diagnoses and we agree, but this is where we're going to fight you. But when forced to face a delusion, most will go to extreme measures to keep the delusion intact. True. However, remember I had said there was a piece of evidence that made me believe that she knew she wasn't pregnant? Mm-hmm. Even though her body is reacting like she's pregnant. So this is where it gets weird. I don't know. But an insurance application from the September before the murder was found. It was filled out by Lisa and she had indicated on the form that she was not pregnant. So then she goes in and out of disassociated states? Maybe. (laughs) But yeah, that's very questionable. Mm -hmm. I can totally see why you think that. Yeah, it's pretty damning evidence against her. Absolutely. Lisa continued to change her story about the birth. And then later claimed that her brother was with her at Bobby Joe's home and had killed Bobby Joe and given her the baby. How is that any better? And why would she throw her brother underneath the bus? I know. And is this the brother that she... I don't know. She's got a lot of siblings. Okay. Yeah, I don't know which brother this is. But he was able to provide a solid alibi. I believe he was with his probation officer at the time of the murder. So... (laughs) Yeah, that's a solid alibi. Yeah, whoops. (laughs) So then Lisa even went as far as to claim that she had amnesia before enduring the murder. It came out that Lisa had also made additional claims of being pregnant in the past. So this was brought up as well, that this was kind of a trend for her, that she knew she wasn't pregnant but had claimed to be multiple times mm-hmm. before. Dr. Dietz stated, quote, It's my opinion with reasonable medical certainty that at the time of the charged offenses, the defendant did not suffer from any mental disease or defect that affected her ability to appreciate the nature and quality of wrongness of her acts. It is my opinion, with reasonable medical certainty, that the defendant was entirely capable of appreciating that she was engaged in a lengthy and elaborate plan designed to kill Bobby Jo Stinnett at a stage of advanced pregnancy to successfully conduct a cesarean section on her first attempt and to kidnap a healthy infant she could present to the world as her own. Well, that's why she had researched how to do a C-section. Mm-hmm. She didn't want to harm the baby. So I'm tending to believe this statement. Yep. Lisa's extreme abuse as a child was also brought up in the court proceedings. They argued that Lisa committed murder under severe mental and emotional disturbance, which I also believe that she was under severe mental and emotional disturbances. She had been. Yes. She wasn't currently, though. But she had never fully recovered from her childhood either. Right. Lisa was found guilty, beyond a reasonable doubt, of kidnapping resulting in death on October 22, 2007. The case then proceeded to the penalty phase. The prosecution was pushing for the death penalty. The defense was vying for life imprisonment. The jury voted unanimously in favor of the death penalty on October 26, just four days after her guilty verdict. Wow, they didn't have to deliberate that long. No. Lisa desperately tried to appeal this decision. Her team argued that because Victoria Joe was not considered a person until she was removed from the womb 
And because Bobby Joe died before the baby was removed from her body, then kidnapping could not be the cause of Bobby Joe's death. They argued that the kidnapping was a result of the death. They argued that in Roe v. Wade, the Supreme Court held that the word person, as used in the 14th Amendment, did not include fetuses. Lisa wanted the murder and kidnapping charges to be separate. However, the fact was that Bobby Joe did die during the kidnapping of her child. They happened simultaneously. Her charge of kidnapping resulting in death stuck. Mm-hmm. So that's where I think it must hold a greater charge. Yeah. Because she was wanting to get them separated okay. to hopefully take the death penalty off the table. I'm always fascinated with the semantics of the law that the lawyers argue. Oh, I know. Lisa's team also argued during the appeal that because of her mental illness and brain damage, Lisa shouldn't be held responsible for her actions. They claimed she was in a delusional or disassociated state at the time of the kidnapping. There were also reports of how well Lisa was doing now that she was on an intensive medical treatment for her mental illness. Apparently she was on many different prescriptions to help her. Attorney Sandra Babcock said, quote, It is difficult to grasp the extremity of the horrors Lisa suffered from her earliest childhood, including being raped by her stepfather, handed off to his friends for their use, sold to groups of adult men by her own mother, and repeatedly gang-raped, and relentlessly beaten and neglected. No one intervened to help Lisa, though many knew what was happening to her. No other woman has been executed for a similar crime because most prosecutors have recognized that it is inevitably the product of trauma and mental illness. Executing Lisa Montgomery would be yet another injustice inflicted on a woman who has known a lifetime of mistreatment. I don't know, I'm kind of swaying that way. I know this one is so hard. What she did was awful. And I don't really believe the whole disassociated state because that's a long time to be in a disassociated state. But at the same time, I'm like, oh, the death penalty, given her history, like how could she have turned out any differently? But then people do. So yeah, it's true. But she was doing really well on her treatment plan. She was finally getting help. She wasn't asking to be set free just for her life to be spared. Right. But at the same time, her life seemed to be on a fairly good path with Kevin that she wasn't experiencing any abuse anymore. There was no reason that she couldn't have found a coping mechanism in that relationship with Kevin, it seems like. Yeah. Like, it's very bizarre to me that it was a good relationship that she was in when she kind of tipped over. Right. She did crave being pregnant. Mm -hmm. That's when she felt cared for, safe, happy, that kind of thing. And she had expressed financial difficulties saying that they couldn't have even afforded a hospital birth. So for her to then seek out counseling or medications, maybe that was not within their budget. I don't know for sure. Maybe. Lisa's appeal to the death penalty became a political one. They reached out to President Donald Trump for clemency. But Trump was a supporter of the death penalty, and it was his office that reinstated executions in 2003. Lisa was hoping to stay her execution long enough for President Biden to get into office as he had promised to enact a moratorium on capital punishment. There were special campaigns and petitions to try and stop Lisa's execution. I even found one on the Cornell Law website. On March 19, 2012, the U.S. Supreme Court denied Lisa's certiorari petition. Lisa awaited death row at the Federal Medical Center in Texas. She was originally scheduled to be put to death on December 8, 2020, but because of COVID complications, it was postponed to January 12, 2021. Apparently, her attorney had come down with COVID. 
At the age of 52, Lisa was executed by lethal injection at 1.31 a.m. on January 13, 2021, at the prison in Terre Haute, Indiana. When asked if she had any last words, she answered no. Lisa was the third woman to be on federal death row since 1927 and was the first female federal prisoner to be executed in 67 years. It's so interesting that it actually proceeded very quickly. It did. For a death sentence penalty? Yes, I agree. It can take years and years. With all of the appeals? Yeah. Yeah. This was a federal death row because she had crossed state lines. Okay. So maybe it's expedited when it's federal. I don't know. So interesting, though. She was the first woman executed since 2015 and the first prisoner to be executed in the year 2021 in the United States. Wow. And that is the story of a woman who lived through unspeakable abuse and torture as a child and grew up to rip a baby from another woman's body, viciously killing her in the act. The dirtbag woman who craved being pregnant, Lisa Montgomery. That is a wild case. Yeah, I was blown away by this case, to be honest. It's hard to fathom that this actually happened. But you can totally see both sides. Mm -hmm. What she did was absolutely a dirtbag move. But I'm having a little bit of a hard time calling her a dirtbag because of that horrific upbringing. Yeah. But what she did was horrific. Yeah, it's a tough one. I am curious if that private practice episode was based on this. Oh, maybe. Like, where did they get their idea from? Because that sounds so similar. What year was that done? That episode. Now we have to look it up. (laughs) The private practice episode happened in 2009. Oh, so this very well could have been. The inspiration for that episode. Yeah. Any private practice fans will remember the horror of that episode. It was awful. It was. And even more horrific to learn that it actually happened in real life. Yeah. I know that things like this is hard to hear about and talk about, but we hope that with us talking about it, it will help to raise awareness and take care of those around you. Take care of your pregnant friends. Take care of one another. And we hope you guys have a wonderful week. Until then. See ya. Bye. actually watch us record we'd have our own comedy show was <laughs> <laughs> so rough usually we're pretty good but we're like yeah no it's great and i was like girls it was not great <laughs> that was published in the journal of obstet obstet obstetrics for example a study in the journal of midwifery and women's health midwifery midwifery yeah not midwifery oh That's an ugly name. Midwifery? I don't like that. (laughs) Okay, well, I'll say it. It's an ugly word. (laughs) You know how some words you really like to say and others you don't? Midwifery? Midwifery. Okay. (laughs) That seems weird, but I'll say it your way. (laughs) What? I know that you're going to not like this one, too. She made a... She made a woman. (laughs) Who is interested in I don't know. Have you seen a picture of those dogs? I did look at them up so I could see what they look like. <laughs> that took, I, I feel you, truck. That took a little bit to get going. <laughs> see, Topeka, that's a nice word to say. <laughs> what evidence did she leave behind? You always think I'm not going to tell you. <laughs>
<laughs> I love it. <laughs> Why do I have such hard words in here? Hey, we're live, pal, and we'd love for you to come check out our podcast, Tales from the Estate. Each week, we talk about our top five favorite somethings. My beautiful wife, Caitlin, likes to share all sorts of random facts. Yeah. Did you know that cows have accents? We did now. But we also review all sorts of snacks and other great things. And so if you love everything random, I think you'd enjoy Tales from the Estate. So come check us out. Yeah. Okay, thanks. Bye. Jeff Woods, and I'm shining a light on music and the rock stars who make it. He just was one of those people, he, he stood out. He was a magic guy. He really was a magic guy. All, we all have force. He had the same amount of force as we all have. This was before Led Zeppelin. Robert was full on. I mean, he was Led Zeppelin without the band behind him. He had the hair, the jeans, the whole thing, you know. And he was amazing. The Records and Rockstars podcast, heard around the world and yours to hear wherever you get podcasts. All the episodes from jeffwoodsradio.com. Another Sound Off Media Company podcast.